I've asked you to be seated, not because the passage is long, not only because the passage is long, but because I'm going to do kind of like Ezra, I imagine, did in the Old Testament when he read the scriptures in the presence of the people in their hearing, and then he gave kind of the sense thereof. And so instead of just reading the passage in its entirety first, I'm going to just read it and comment here and there as we go to give us a little bit of a few things I want us to see there. And so that'll take a while, so I think you'll be more comfortable if you just remain seated. But I do not want you to follow along. If you you have your Bible, find it there. If not, use the text that's for you in the bulletin. We're, We're looking at the Old Testament. We're looking in the book of Samuel, the preparation that God has given his people for giving them an anointed one, a king, who will eventually, of course, be King David. And we're seeing the story basically of the priesthood. Last week we saw a lot concerning God's prophecy about the sending of the king, the anointed one, God's anointed one, in the prayer that Hannah prayed. Today we're looking at God's prospects for the priesthood, and then we'll look at a week or two at God's prophecies concerning the prophetic ministry. These are the classic three offices of the Old Testament, the prophet, the priest, and the prince, the prophet, priest, and the king. These are the three offices through which Christ himself does his work of our salvation and his work upon earth. They're sometimes called mediatorial offices because Christ is the one mediator between God and man, and he mediates between God and man as a king, he mediates as a priest, and he mediates between God and man as a prophet. All three of these offices are fulfilled completely and absolutely and uniquely and wonderfully in Christ Jesus himself. But each office has its distinction, and there's a relatedness, and there's a distinction. And we emphasis today is on the priesthood. Eli is the high priest in Israel. This is the days of the judges. There's no king in Israel. And they have judges to rule over them. And Eli happens to be of the lineage of Aaron, who was Moses' brother, who was the first high priest in Israel. And he's descended and he set up what's left of the shatters and tatters of the tabernacle at Shiloh. There they have the ark of God and some of the accompanying incense altars and things like that. And Eli the priest has maintained for many years the shrine, the holy shrine at Shiloh, which is the place where Samuel's mother went and father went when they offered the sacrifices and it was there she prayed and it was there the Lord answered her prayer when she went back home. And so that's kind of the story. And so we pick it up here in the uh, chapter two in verse 11. Then Elkanah, which is Samuel's father, went home to Ramah and the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Notice when he's a boy, he's ministering in the presence of Eli. He's understudying. But you'll see pretty soon the language will change. He's ministering in the presence of the Lord. He's growing into his office. Samuel is going to be a prophet, the priest, and the judge, which is the precursor to the king in Israel. And he is in many ways a type of Christ, but he's also the restoration of godly rule because now that we get into the text, we're going to see some horrible things. The priesthood, which very central core idea of the priesthood is to minister the holiness of God to the people. 
And here we're going to see two of the most unholy characters you've ever seen in your life. And we're going to see what God does about it. So let me just read the story and you follow along. Beginning in verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. That doesn't sound too good right there. Descendants of Aaron. Sons of the high priest of Israel. Worthless men. It literally means pagan men. Men who really, even though their, their lips gave service to God in the temple of the tabernacle, their hearts were far from Him. In fact, it was worse than that. They did not know the Lord. What else do we need to say about these worthless men? Now, the custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and all that the fork brought up, the priest would take to himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. That's not what they were supposed to be doing. Go back and check Exodus and Leviticus. They weren't supposed to be doing it that. Now the Lord provided the sacrifice. The people would come and make the blood sacrifice and bring the animals, the bulls and the, and the goats and all of the animal sacrifices. And the priests were to get a portion of it. That's how the priest made their living. That's how they ate. They got a portion of the, of the offering and a portion of the tithe. But it was specified as to how that was to take place. What's happening here, they're taking a three-pronged fork, which gets a whole lot more meat up than a two-pronged fork, wouldn't you think? And shove it into the pot, the cauldron, whatever the process was, and they would pull out their meat. But what was going on in Shiloh was they were cheating the system even more than that. And all the Israelites came up there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast. For he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. So now they're taking from the sacrifice a portion that is prior to that which is to be offered. In fact, it spells it out a little more here. If a man will say, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish. In other words, the poor old Israelites were saying, look, the, the, the law says we're supposed to burn the fat. We're supposed to burn the entrails. We're supposed to burn and consume a portion of the meat the lean meat, and a portion, a particular flank actually, was reserved for the priest. And the wicked sons of Eli would say, no, that's not how we're going to do it here. We're going to get our portion before there's any consumption. In other words, they were stepping in ahead of the Lord to take their portion. Think about what these priests are doing, these young sons of Eli. No, you must give it now. If not, I will take it by force. The offerings were always a free will offering, but here is the priest using the spiritual power that they held over the people to enforce their own greed and their own consumption. Oh my goodness, can you see the decadence and the downgrade and the depravity of the holiest men in Israel ostensibly? Well, this is a sad situation. These are dark days in Israel when these young men were doing what they did. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the, Lord in, in, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. There's your bottom line right there. Their problem was they had contempt for God. They didn't care about God, didn't care about His sacrifice, didn't care about His commandments, didn't care about holiness, didn't care about anything but their belly. And if you'll read the passage a little further, you'll see they went a little lower than their belly. That was where their center was of what they cared about. That's what they worshiped. 
That's what consumed them. Now Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. Oh, don't you just sort of hear that little strain just thrown in there? God's got him a little boy. He's starting over. God's going to raise up somebody else. But meanwhile, year after year, young Samuel, who's been there probably since his preschool years, has been serving before the Lord with these corrupt priests and this old high priest Eli. Samuel's ministering before the Lord. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. They're still doing this. They'd been doing it before Samuel was born. They're doing it after Samuel was born. Every year, this man takes his family up to Shiloh to offer sacrifice to the Lord, yearly sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord so that they... So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. This was a barren woman a couple of weeks ago. We lamented and cried about this poor Hannah in her barrenness and now she has multiple children. But she had given the first fruits of her womb to the Lord. And then the Lord had given back to her fivefold at least of what she had given to the Lord when she gave the little boy Samuel. And the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. He's not just in the presence of the Lord, now he's growing in the presence of the Lord. Now back to our story about Eli. Now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing in Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving in the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? God judges between man and man by virtue of His law and His equity and His righteousness and His justice and His vengeance, His blessings and His cursings, God handles that. But what, what happens when someone sins against God? Who can intercede? Who can mediate? Who can get between man and God? You see here we're calling for a mediator. We're calling for someone who is adequately able to deal with God and also man. I think we'll see very quickly that there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He can handle God because He is very God and very God. He can handle man because He is God in the flesh, absolute humanity. And He stands in both camps with both parties and is able to satisfy one and justify the other. And that's what you see here. That's a good question. In fact, uh, the, the purpose of the priest was to minister the sacrifices with the blood and the burnings and all that was involved there. You're familiar with the Old Testament sacrificial system, I'm sure, to some extent. But then they were also to intercede for the people. They were to pray for the people and plead for the people. 
They were the, the ones that would take the petitions. That's what the incense was. They would put the, the perfumes upon the fire and it would steam up into a big steam and it symbolized the, the rising prayers of God's people coming. And this, of course, is what was going on here in Israel was the incense offering. And then the most important thing, the most important thing the priest did, especially the high priest, of course, was to enter the presence of the Lord. Once a year, he would go into the most holy place in the tabernacle, and there he would bring the blood of the atoning sacrifice and place it upon the mercy seat, the golden slab that covered the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolized the throne of God, the place of God, and would turn what is, a, what is, a, what is the throne of judgment into a throne of mercy and grace. So the priest would enter the presence of God. They're the only people that could to get beyond that veil and come to the presence of God. They were the people that ministered the sacrifice. They handled the blood and the body of the atonement. And they also were the ones who prayed for and ministered to the people in, in their prayers and their supplications. So that's the priestly ministry. But listen to what these old sons of Eli, they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. It's the will of God to put anybody to death that acts like they do. This is not complicated. Here they were committing high treason against the king of heaven. They were abusing the very system. They were trampling underfoot the blood. They were robbing God by taking the portion of the sacrifice. They were committing abominations and whoredoms in the very temple of God. They were forcing the people with violence and, and threats to take their portion. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. And these men were sowing seeds of destruction. And so the Lord just had his mind made up all along that anybody that does this sort of thing is going to be put to death. And that's the will of the Lord was to put them to death. Oh, one more time in the suite, coming down here to the next verse, verse 26. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow, both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. This is a quotation out of the Pentateuch. It's also a quotation out of Proverbs chapter 3. It's also what Luke, in Luke chapter 2, uses to describe Jesus Jesus in his boyhood grew and increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. One more time, we have pictures and glimpses and little flashing lights and flags in the Old Testament to talk about there's one coming. Samuel is like him. Samuel tells us something about him, but it's more than Samuel. There's going to be another one coming. Then there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus the Lord has said, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt and subject to the house of Pharaoh? This is, of course, the reference to Moses and especially Aaron, because Eli is a descendant of Aaron. Did I choose him out of the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense? That's what the priests did, to wear an ephod before me. 
I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. You got to enjoy the sacrifices and your portion of it. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. That was the promise that God had made to Moses and Aaron. And then, of course, the tribe of Levi as they replaced the firstborn of Israel. God claimed the firstborn of every family, but you could redeem your son from the priesthood by paying. And then the whole tribe of Levi, one of the sons of Jacob, was designated as the priest before the Lord in the place of the firstborn. Far be it from me, from those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. God made the promise, but the people had so violated that he could not continue with that promise. This was a, a, the old covenant. We'll see a little bit more about that in just a moment. He says, I will cut off your strength. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength from the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the posterity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. Now we'll see in the very next chapter that this came true immediately with these two wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas. This shall come upon your sons, that he shall be a sign to both. Both shall die on the same day. Now this came to, to pass historically. The descendant of Eli to the third generation was Abathar. Abathar served as the priest to King David for a while. But David had another priest, a young priest, almost like the boy Samuel, that came in and worked in the priesthood. And he was of a different son of Aaron, Eleazar. And this guy's name was Zadok or Zadok. And in the days of King David, he managed to diplomatically work both of these priests into, into uh, the ministry in the tent that he put up in, in Zion, Zion's Hill, which is a different hill than the temple where he kept the ark and kept the praises of the Lord going. And really was kind of a, uh, Zion's worship was kind of a, a, a forebearer to, to Christian worship and praise. It didn't have all the furnishings and all the trappings of the tabernacle but it just had an altar and they just sang praises before the Lord and before the Lord in the altar. And that's where we were. We don't need an altar for a sacrifice. Christ, our sacrifice has been sacrificed once for all. But David had this worship service and as time went by, and especially then when King Solomon arose to the throne, he banished Abathar from the priesthood and he was the last remaining one of the lineage and he ended up becoming a beggar. We'll see in just a moment uh, the prophecy of that. And Zadok, who was a descendant of Eleazar, son of Aaron, became the high priest. And he remained the high priest all the way, his family all the way through the rest of the kingdom and all the way through the captivity and following the captivity. In fact, when we time we get to the times of Christ, descendants of Zadok are ruling Israel. They're called the Sadducees. And they are ruling Israel as the, as the priestly family when Jesus came. So God wiped out 
the lineage of Eli. And Abathar was the last one, and Zadok then took the high priest family and carried it on through to the days of Christ, which of course are the days of the fulfillment. And this is what we see in this very next verse. Verse 35, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. That was the end of Abathar right there. He ended up becoming a beggar and living off of the largesse of, the, of what was left. But did you notice that verse 35? Here's the promise. Here's the prophecy. Here's Christ. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he will go in and out before my anointed forever. That's Christ. And I'm going to show you where you can find it. We don't have time to go into the details, which is what I really wanted to do today, but let me show it to you. You mean to show you the faithful priest and the sure house and the anointed and forever? These words, these key words, turn with me to the book of Hebrews. I know where you know where it is in your Bible, but if you don't, it's in your pew Bible. It's 1002, your blue pew Bible, page 1002, you'll find Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, now let me say while you're turning there that you should be familiar with the book of Hebrews, but the book of Hebrews is the book on the priesthood, and it is taking all of the elements of the ancient priesthood in Israel, and the tabernacle and the temple and all the things that went before, and showing how all of that stuff had its meaning, a true meaning, a very productive and wonderful purpose under the old covenant, but how God has fulfilled all of those images and all of those figures and all of those shadows and all of those signs and prophecies, and he's fulfilled them in Christ and in Christ's church and in Christ's person, in Christ's work. So here, let me just sketch it for you from especially beginning in chapter 3, going through chapter 10. Of course, the next chapter is the famous faith chapter, chapter 11. What goes before the faith chapter? Before we're called upon to have faith, we've got, we've got eight chapters of the Lord telling us what Christ has done for us. That's something that we put our faith in. That's something we can believe in. But notice chapter, chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, and this is now speaking to the, the Christians in the New Testament church, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus... That's what we're, we need to do. Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him. There's your faithful priest right there. And, it, and it's repeated, the same idea is repeated down in verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. That's kind of a summary of some of the things that Hebrews tell us. The faithfulness of Christ 
The one who obeyed the Father, who, who learned obedience through the things that he suffered, who prayed to the Father, pouring out his heart with supplications, who lived an obedient life, who was that perfect priest. We read all about the, the priest in, in uh, uh, Israel a moment ago, how ungodly they were. Listen at something about Christ. For it is indeed fitting that, he should, that we should have such a high priest, holy Think of Eli's sons, but now think of Christ, a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Indeed, like those high priests offer sacrifice daily for their own sins and then for the sins of the people, Jesus, our high priest, did this once for all when he offered up himself. In that verse we read back, in, that was out of chapter 7, by the way. Uh, we read back in chapter 3, tells us something about Christ. It says he's a faithful over God's house. The house that God is building, the eternal house, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's the people of God. I hear people get all excited that they're going to build a temple in Jerusalem. Well, I don't know what, anything about that, but I know that the true temple has already been built and is being built. And it is the temple of one stone, one living stone upon another, built up into a holy habitation for God Himself, which is the true temple, which is the people of God. And it's a temple that is established on heavenly terms and on a new covenant, and it will last forever. And it's done by virtue of one who is a son not by one who is a servant. Moses is called a servant in the house of the Lord. Aaron was a servant in the house of the Lord. Samuel was a servant in the house of the Lord. But Jesus is a son in the house of the Lord. And he that hath the son hath life. And over and over in this book of Hebrews, it tells us more and more about it. It tells the nature of his priesthood. An interesting thing. It's always talking about the priest going, standing before the king and before the mercy seat, the throne. And there seems like there's kind of a mix of the royal office, the kingly office, and the priestly office. Well, there is because it's a new order. Under the new covenant, there's a new order. It's not the order of Aaron anymore. The ironic order has now been superseded and fulfilled by a different order, the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was an ancient character who symbolizes an eternal priesthood because there's no record of his, his uh, parents or his children. He represents not time, but eternity. All the other priests, on and on you read, all the way down into the last books of the Old Testament, all about the lineage. Who was the priest? Who, was, who served? No, with Melchizedek, he's eternal. And Christ is that. Not only that, Melchizedek was a king. He was king of Salem, Jerusalem, actually, the ancient site. And is, that means peace, Salem, Shalom. He's the Prince of Peace. So here we find in one person, in the person of Christ, we find all of the kingly fulfillment, the anointed, the royal, and the priestly. And one more thing about the priestly ministry of Jesus is he, as a high priest, made a sacrifice. He offered a sacrifice. He presented a sacrifice. And the book of Hebrews tells us some wonderful things. He said it was his own body. That that's why he was incarnate. That's why he was in the flesh. He had to be made like his brothers and sisters, just like us, 
in order to bear our sins and to pay the penalty. Because God has determined to put you to death. And He carries out His determinate will in Christ. And His meat is laid upon the table. The mercy seat. The Bible says Jesus tore down the veil which was His flesh. As His flesh was torn, an access to God's heavenly throne was opened. And there in the heavenly mercy seat, the blood of Christ was put there, which is an infinite atonement for all of His people. Just like the ancient high priest wore upon his breastplate the stones and the names of the twelve tribes of Israel, the names of his people are upon him as he suffers and dies and yields himself up. As not only the high priest making the offering, but as the very lamb and meat and bull and goat. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. That whole system never could get away sin. It could just do one thing, scream out. There's a faithful priest coming. There's an eternal sacrifice yet to be made. Behold, the days are coming when God's going to do it. He's going to accomplish it. He's going to finish everything He said. He's going to bring us a king. He's going to bring us a prophet. He's going to bring us a priest. And they're going to do all that Israel failed to do. And in Christ, all of God's prophecies are amen. That's right. For sure. And Jesus himself is the very spirit of prophecy. These things are accomplished in the life of Christ. 